All right, Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin tonight in verse 18. The real meat of Romans begins here in verse 18. Now, what he's going to do is going to eventually prove that they're all under sin when he comes down to chapter 3. But this verse 18 is the foundation, the principle on which much of Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 hinges. The principle here is one that has been destroyed, for instance, in the New International Version. They did not understand it, so they changed the meaning of the verse. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's read it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what does he mean here by hold the truth? He means hold the truth in the same way that you would hold in your hand a book, the same way that you would hold in your heart a concept, a hold in your mind a belief. He's saying they hold the truth. Now, this word hold is used in the New Testament about 19 times in the Greek. I'm going to read these 19 times to you. The reason this is important, for instance, is because the New International Version translates Romans chapter 1, verse 18 this way. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So they teach that God punishes men who suppress the truth, not men who hold the truth. Now, quite the opposite is taught here. He said God reveals wrath against those who hold the truth. I picked this songbook up and hold it here in front of you. Now, hold this songbook. If, if this songbook were part of my mind and part of my heart, then I'd be holding all the songs there in my, in my brain, in my mind, in my heart. That's what he means when he says hold the truth. Let me take this Greek word kateko and trace it down. Uh, is found 19 times, and it's translated in the King James Bible, hold three times, hold fast three times, keep twice, possess twice, stay once, take once, have once, make once, and then five times miscellaneous. Now, when you look up Strong's Greek definitions, he says this word means the first definition is to hold back, detain, or retain. The King James Bible didn't translate it that way. He says it means retain from going away or to restrain or hinder the course or progress of that which hinders Antichrist from making his appearance. And then he says it's to hold fast, to keep secure, or to keep firm possession of, lastly, to take possession of. Now here's the way the King James Bible uses it. Come let us kill and let us seize on his inheritance. Now, obviously, that's a hold. That's to grab a hold. That's retain. That's to keep to yourself, right? Again, Luke 4.42. Now, I'm not skipping any of these. He says, and they came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart. So, again, that's retaining, keeping. In uh, Luke 8.15, they translated, and having heard the word and keep it and bring forth fruit. Again, that's to retain, to hold. Luke 14, 9, thou begin with shame to take the lowest seat. That's a person who goes back and sits in a seat. He's taken, he's holding the seat. Whole of whatsoever disease he had, he had is the same Greek word here uh, as whole, whatever disease he had or hold or was part of him. Acts 27, 40, he said, put up the mainsail to the wind and made, and made is the same word as whole, towards shore. In other words, they fixed themselves and they went in that direction. 
uh, Romans 1.18 and then Romans 7.6, the law being dead wherein we, we were held. That's the same word. We were held by the law. Of 1 Corinthians 7.30, that they buy as though they possessed, not as though they possessed is the Greek word here, as though they possessed, held. 1 Corinthians 11.2 says, remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered. Keep, that's the same word, keep. Uh, also, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.2, he says, which also you are saved if you keep in memory the things I preach. Hold firmly. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, as having nothing and yet possessing, there's that word hold, possessing all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things, hold fast. That's the word hold. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.6, and you know that withholdeth that he might be revealed. He's holding something. He's withholding, not, not holding back as we would use it today, but, but he's hanging on to it. He's retaining it. He's keeping it to himself. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. This is, this is a letting like one has a dog on a leash and he allows the dog to go so far but no further. You might say he's letting the dog run out three feet and then you might say he's holding the dog on the leash. Both are true. In other words, this individual is limited and controlled and allowed out to a certain extent and no further. He's keeping him. He's holding him. He's letting him just so far and no further. And that's a verse that they, that they have trouble with as well. And he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, Only he who now letteth will let. That's the word letteth. Retain, hold on to, till he be taken out of the way. And then uh, Philemon 13, he says, Whom I have retained with me. Three more. Hebrews 3, 6, whose house are we if we hold fast? That's the same word. Hebrews 3, 14, we're made protectors of Christ if we hold, the beginning of our confidence. And Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Now you notice all those translations had to do with getting a hold or retaining something. That's the same Greek word he uses here when he says God reveals wrath against those who hold the truth. In no way could we construe that to be some light understanding. In no way could we construe that to be a dismissal of the truth. In no way could we construe that to be suppressing the truth. There's only one definition left to us, and that's holding, as in holding fast, as in retaining in an intimate way. That's the people to whom God reveals wrath. You say, well, you've gone to a lot of energy here on proving this word. Why? Because this entire doctrine of chapter 1, 2, and 3 is built around the principle that he's revealing to us right here. Now you say, well, what would be the opposite of that? The opposite of that would be what's normally taught today. It's normally taught today that God's wrath is upon infants the day they're born. What's normally taught is that God is angry at the fetus because the fetus is a dirty, wicked sinner. Because the fetus sinned 6,000 years ago against God. And that fetus is morally to blame for that sin. And that fetus is corrupt in nature. That fetus has a sinful nature. And therefore that fetus is despised by God. That's normally what's taught by 99.99% of Christians throughout the world today. Now... Paul says the opposite. He said God reveals wrath against individuals who hold 
truth. An infant cannot hold truth. And who hold it in unrighteousness. That is the truth that they have in their heart, they're disobeying. That is the understanding and knowledge they have of duty. They are dismissing their duty, refusing to do the duty that they know that they're holding on to. You see why it's very important to be very clear on your definition of this verse. Now, it's interesting. The New International Version translates it that one time as suppress. But listen to the other ways that the New International Version translates this word. It translates it take, keep, retain, take, had. John 5, 4, 42 words are missing. And that word's missing, so there's no translation there at all. And then in uh, Acts 27, 40, he translates it made, uh, translates it suppress, that one time in Romans. Then they translate it bound. They translate it theirs to keep. They translate holding to. They translate hold firmly. They translate it same, hold on to, holding him back, holds it back, like to keep, hold on to. We hold, hold unswervingly. So you see the New International Version consistently translates it as holding except in this one verse. Now why then, since they understand the meaning of it all the other times as it used, why do they suddenly switch the meaning in this verse and this verse alone? Because this is the verse, if you'll read the commentaries on Romans, where they begin to misunderstand the teachings in Romans. This is the verse where they look at it and say that couldn't possibly be true that God punishes people for holding truth. We know that God damns people who don't hear the truth. And so immediately right here they depart from what Paul is trying to say by changing even in their Bibles their translations. Not change it because there's any basis in Greek but change it because the basis is in their own doctrinal views. Now, folks, that happens over and over again in Bible translations. You will see that out of 15 or 20 or 30 translations of a verse, all of a sudden one of them will be translated opposite to what it is, even in that translation. And then they'll make a big deal over it. Why? Because that's the place where they doctrinally cannot accept what the Scripture says. No basis in Greek. They'll change it. The King James Bible is the only one that's consistent and accurate in every way. Now, let's go back to our verse again. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now this wrath is not God's anger, although he's angry. It's not the natural consequences of sin, although there's natural consequences to sin. But this is the duty of the moral governor to reveal wrath on people who hold truth unrighteously. It's at this point that most philosophies and most religions draw the line and go no further. That God is a God of wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's the supreme court. Heaven is the throne of righteousness. Heaven is the place where if the wrath of God is poured out on you, it is a hopeless situation. Against all ungodliness. The Bible tells us in Genesis 9, 6 that God made man in his image. James 3, 9 says he made man after the similitude of God. You see, we were made to be godly. We're made to be godlike. And he says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So the greater the gap between the truth one holds and the obedience he renders, the greater the wrath. Let's take a, an American Indian 400 years ago, right where we stand now. There are arrowheads all around here. That American Indian was 
sitting on the bank of Cane Creek right here. He was walking through these fields and over these hills, and he hunted game, and he worshipped some great spirit. Now, how did God view him? Was he damned because of what Adam did? Was he lost from the day he was born? Did he go to hell because he never heard? Now, the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. It tells us that there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. Now, that man was lost. He was without God. He was, in fact, born separated from God. He was not born unrighteous. He was born neither with sin nor with right doing, but he was born without the Spirit of God. He was born left to the resources of his own mind and his own body. And what he had was insufficient to live godly. His passions and his lust and the society in which he lived induced him to sin very early in his life. From the very breast of his mother, he was a liar. He was a deceiver from the earliest ages, and he indulged his flesh to his pleasure, and he ignored the truth of God. As he got a little older, he no doubt began to think about the spirits. He began to think about who created him. He began to think about his responsibility. And he developed some concepts as to what was right and wrong. And he made up his mind, no doubt, that he ought to do the right thing. His witch doctor was teaching him to be good, to be righteous, and not to commit acts of sin. In his own tribe, there was punishment for wrongdoing. And there was promise of punishment and afterlife if you didn't do as you ought to do. So this man developed some understanding of truth. He stood on the top of that ridge over there and he meditated as the sun went down about how he was created. He meditated about his responsibility and he looked at his own lust and he decided that he should not lust and he should not be greedy and he should not be selfish and he should not be violent and mean, at least to his own people. And then he left that hill and he set out with an intention to do what he ought to do. With a concept in his mind that there was truth that should be obeyed. But over the course of his life, he followed his own lust. Over the course of his own life, he ignored the truth that he was holding. Over the course of his own life, he involved himself in sin because it was pleasurable. He involved himself in indulgence because he chose that over the truth that was in his own mind. As a result of this, God saw him as a transgressor. God saw him as a lawbreaker. God saw him as a man in rebellion because that's what he was. And God communicated with him. The Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to that man because John chapter 1 tells us that he is the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. God revealed himself to that man and spoke to that man maybe in dreams, in visions, spoke to him in his spirit in times of quietness. And that man heard the voice of God, and he was challenged to walk in truth and in obedience. He may have decided on different occasions to do that very thing. But again, the lust of his own flesh overcame him. And in the process of time, he was committed to a life of sin and indulgence. He became a hypocrite. He became a deceiver. He pretended he was one thing on the outside while he was another on the inside. In some cases, he threw away religion. He threw away belief. In the spirits. In some cases, he gave himself over to extreme violence and lust and, and warfare. And all of those Indians who lived in this area, without exception, all of them, 
became depraved in every aspect of their mind, their soul, their body, and their spirit. All of them were lost. All of them were in need of redemption. And they died without excuse. They died without God. They died without eternal life. They were lost. Every one of them were lost without the Savior. But they were lost not because they never heard. They were lost because they held truth and didn't obey it. And they were damned as a result of it. Now that is the Bible truth about the heathen. The heathen then and the heathen today. The heathen in New York, the heathen in Los Angeles. You see, if you go to a man and you tell him that you and your ancestors were lost simply because they didn't hear about Jesus, then he sees that as extremely unjust. And most Christians see it as unjust. That's why many Christians are not willing to accept the fact that people are lost without Christ. That's the reason many Christians want to think that somehow there's hope for the heathen somewhere without the message of Christ. Because they see it as such an unjust thing for them to be damned from the day they're born with no hope. Now granted, the end is not different. In other words, all men are lost without Christ. But at least the Bible teaches that it is their lust that they followed. Every man is enticed when he's drawn away of his own lust. And drawn away of his own lust, he commits a transgression against truth he holds. When that American Indian stands before God, he'll stand there with shame. He won't stand there in surprise and amazement and wonder. He won't stand there and say, well, if I'd only heard. He won't stand there and say, if I only knew. He'll stand there in the exact same spirit that some of you sitting here will stand. He'll stand there and say, I, I should have. I knew I should have. I ought to. I tried. I wish I had. I blew it. And he'll feel personally responsible. He'll feel personally accountable He'll know that he's justly damned. He'll know that he had his chance in his own life. Though he held the truth, he rejected obeying that truth. And he will be no different from a preacher who preached in a Christian church for 40 years and stands before God and finds out he never knew God. He's rejected because he never was born again. He never repented to God with his heart. He never believed on the finished work of Christ. He'll stand with the same realization that it was he himself that failed. It was not a failure of truth being communicated to him, but a failure to obey the truth that he had. And when he's cast into hell, he'll know that he's justly cast into hell, that he had his chance and failed. Now that's where Romans chapter 1 verse 18 starts off, explaining to us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. In unrighteousness. Let that sink in. Let that become the foundation for these coming verses because you're going to see that same truth expanded and spoken much more clearly than it is here in this passage. 19, the first word, because, in other words, he's explaining what he just said in verse 18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, because that which may be known of God. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Is this a statement about them not having truth or an explanation as to how they had truth? This is obviously an explanation as to how it is that they held the truth. Because 
that which may be known of God is manifest. Notice he didn't say manifest to them. He said manifest in them. That's intuitive knowledge. Now that which may be known of God will vary from person to person. That which may be known of God will vary from one tribal group or one religion to another. You see, much of what any, hear me now, much of what any religion teaches is true. There's much truth in any religion. In other words, all the religions teach that one should do right, righteousness. And if you ask what righteousness is, there's going to be a general agreement in any religion that righteousness is not murdering. Now, some of them may permit killing their enemies, but not those that are part of their own tribal group. They will teach that murder is wrong, violence is wrong, that taking someone's wife is wrong, that sex prior to and outside of marriage is wrong, that hate is wrong, greed is wrong, selfishness is wrong. All the basic concepts that we have about right and wrong and that are taught in the Ten Commandments are going to be held by any religious group. That which may be known of God is manifest in them. How is that true that it's manifest in them? For God has showed it unto them. You see, there was no Christian or Jew there preaching to that American Indian. But God was there preaching to that American Indian. God was there speaking the truth. God has showed it unto them. When we go to flea markets and art shows, we see pictures of the noble savage standing on a bluff with a little feather blowing and making some gesture of obeyance to the great spirit. Now, folks, somehow they're wanting to elevate that to us and, and extol that as above our own faith and revelation today. But the very fact that the heathen who paint those pictures recognize that people everywhere were religious, that people everywhere had knowledge of God, and people everywhere sought God in some outward religious form. His testimony not to their rejection of truth, but to their holding truth whether they obeyed it or not. He says, But that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. So the Spirit of God is active, revealing God to every man, every man who's capable of understanding. No man with all his mental faculties is without some knowledge of God. John 1.19 is where he said, He's the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, verse 20. For the invisible things of him, that's God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So he says that from looking at the creation, from observing what God has created, men see invisible things. Now, as I look out across that field, everything that I see is visible, <laughs> You know, I see cow piles, horse piles, I see weeds, I see uh, an old bucket, I see a t-shirt somebody left out there, I see trees and fence and fence posts. I see all those things in the field. Now, I don't see anything that's invisible, right? And yet, if I were to meditate on that and look beyond that to the trees and to the sky beyond and meditate, I would begin to see something that you can't see with your eyes. I'd begin to see it with my spirit. So he said, the invisible things of God. What are the invisible things of God? Truth, justice, judgment, love, mercy, grace, power. God's attributes, 
Those are the invisible things of God. He said they're clearly, clearly seen. He's telling us that they are seen not vaguely, but distinctly. That means there's an understanding in that heathen man, a clear understanding about God. And he gets that through nature. You say, how does that work? Well, if you were to walk into a room somewhere, and on the wall you saw a painting. If you looked at that, you wouldn't say, well, this must have been um, some kids playing around in here. Uh, there must have been an explosion in here and blue paint all over the wall. Or it looks like it's mildewed in different colors. If you looked at that, you'd say, oh, there's a painter around here, an artist. And if it was a really good painting, you'd say, well, there's a really good artist around here. And then you'd stand and stare at that painting. You'd say, well, he must be a sad artist. Look at what he painted. He must be lonely. Look at, look at, what he's, look at the colors here. He must be depressed. And you would stand there and you'd look at that painting and you'd get some feeling or some idea about what that artist was like. Or you might look at it and say, oh, that's a cheerful, happy artist. I'd like to know him. And you would develop some ideas of that artist from what you saw. You get the same thing if you drive up to a house and no one's home. You go back and say, what are those people like? Oh, they're kind of white trash. They're low class. They're uneducated. They're, they're poor, dumb people. Now, that's probably what they say when they come up to our house, you know. And you develop some idea about people from the things that they make, don't you? When people look at God's universe, they develop some concepts about God. That which may be known of God is manifest in them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood. And take that word, understood. There's an understanding that develops in the heathen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. He said that's what they understand, even his eternal power and Godhead. Those are three words. Eternal. God is forever and forever. They see that God is eternal. He didn't have any beginning. He's eternal. He's powerful. God is all-powerful. And Godhead, he is a plurality of persons. That is, when men look at nature, they know God is forever, that he's all-powerful, and that he is in some form a family man. That he has fellowship and love within his own person. They see the Godhead. This men develop from nature, this understanding. He says, so that they are without excuse. In other words, he said this understanding, this revelation of truth, this knowledge, this seeing the unseeable leaves them without excuse regarding their responsibility to God. Clearly seen, understood, and now without excuse. Because, verse 21 begins with because, again, he is rolling along continuing to expand and expound this idea of them holding truth. Because that when they, what does it say? Knew God. Who knew God? Heathen. People without a Bible, without Judaism. When they knew God. Does this say they knew God? Obviously it does, right? They held the truth and they knew God by holding the truth. This was not an act of suppressing the truth. This was an act of holding truth and knowing God as a result of holding it. When they knew God, what did they do about it? They glorified him not as 
God. See, man unavoidably knows God. Knows his attributes, knows his glory, knows his righteousness, and knows his purpose. What did they do? They glorified him not. They did not do what one ought to do in regard to one so high and holy. When a king walks in, the common people are expected to either stand or to kneel. But they don't just sit in his presence. The things that men ought to do in regard to those who deserve honor. And men ought to glorify God. The glory in the glorious doesn't need to be a written law. To fail to glory in the glorious is to rebel. Why? Because it is the nature of man to glory in anything that is glorious. We glory in a sunset. We glory in the strength of a great animal. We glory in great deeds. We glory in things of beauty, things of might, things of strength. We glory in the China Wall. We glory in the Eiffel Tower. We glory in our great buildings. We glory in our superhighways and bridges. We glory in the stone walls that we build and a log cabin that's constructed by hand. It is our nature and we do it without trying to. We always and all the time are glorying in one thing or another. And then if a man knows God and turns his back and doesn't glorify him, that man's a rebel. That man didn't just commit a sin of omission. That was a sin of commission. He didn't just accidentally fail to do something. He chose not to. He had some kind of a beef with God. He had some kind of a personal offense or complaint. That man's pride told him that God doesn't deserve it. He's not just. He hasn't treated you right. And he chose not to glorify God. God expects every human being born on the face of this earth who reaches a place of being able to glory in anything, he expects him to glory in God. Obviously, the two-year-old can't glory in anything. The one-year-old, the idiot and the retard cannot glory in anything. But those who have reached a place of intellectual maturity will glory and are expected to glory in God. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. That's the beginning of atheism. Think about the first sin listed of the heathen. First sin is not adultery, fornication, or murder. Not shrinking heads or eating human flesh. The first sin is not glorifying God. And what's the second sin? The second sin that God uses to point out the depravity and the fact that heathen deserve to be damned, the second sin is neither were thankful. Think about it. Neither were thankful. That is the mark of a rebellious sinner, not to be thankful. Why? Why, it's natural to be thankful when someone does something for you. If you were underwater, like I read about a fellow was stone rolled on him and pinned him underwater. He's about a foot down. And the, the stone weighed several hundred pounds, and his, uh, a guy nearby fishing, trout fishing, a guy nearby saw it and ran over to where this fellow was and tried to roll the stone off of him and couldn't. So he got a big breath of air and went down and put his mouth over that fellow's mouth and blew the, blew the air in his lungs. And then came up and screamed to get some help and got another breath of air and bent, bent over and blew it back in the man's mouth. He kept that man alive for 20 minutes while he went and got help. He got that stone off of it. Now, do you know that man was thankful for that air? 
He was thankful. Now, if he'd gotten up and said, you got the foulest breath. <laughs> if he'd gotten up and said, don't you ever brush your teeth? <laughs> if he'd gotten up and said, you bit my lip. <laughs> You'd want to slap him down, right? You said, this is the most unthankful man on the face of the earth. I guarantee you, when he got up, he was thankful for the air he had. And yet sinners breathe good, fresh, clean air all day long and don't thank God for it. Sinners eat food. Now, if you were to go over there where Tom is in one of those prisons and take one of them a piece of stale wheat bread, they'd be thankful for it. If you were to go over there and take them some of what you have to eat, they'd be thankful for it. If they could have a day of rest and peace like you have, a day without fear, a place to lie down, stretch out all the way, and sleep without interruption, without fear of their life, they'd be thankful. The Bible said one of the marks of a sinner is he's not thankful. Wow. Neither were thankful. But instead of being thankful, they became vain in their imaginations. Now, what does it mean vain in their imaginations? That means they began to conceive of things that were not true. They began to imagine an alternative to the God they weren't glorifying. They began to imagine reality to be different from what they'd seen it was. They began to concoct and scheme a worldview that didn't include a holy God and a day of judgment, which they already knew existed. They began to imagine that things were kinder and gentler. They began to imagine that things were more promiscuous. They began to imagine that maybe they were just going through another phase of life that they were reincarnated and they'd go through many more and eventually reach their karma. They came up with all kinds of various concepts, none of which would make them feel guilty right now today. None of which would make them feel in imminent danger of damnation for their rebellion against truth. All the things they came up with permitted them to indulge the flesh without fear of consequences. They became vain, empty, futile, a lie in their imaginations. And their foolish heart, foolish heart, foolish heart was darkened. Now... Notice this darkened heart was a process that happened in their own lifetime, in their own experience, as a result of choices they made. Their foolish heart was darkened. That means it went from lighter to darker. Right? You say, well, that, that's no big... Folk, that's really important in theology. They weren't born with a dark heart. They weren't born with a heart that was totally blackened. They were born and grew into a state of light and knowledge and truth and understanding, turned their back on that truth and light, and a darkening occurred in their experience, and it's for that darkened state into which they brought themselves that God judges them and faults them. So simple. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. Well, what else could they profess but themselves? They'd rejected the truth. Professing themselves, these people became professors, professional fools. They gave degrees to these professors 
and call themselves doctors of psychiatry or doctors of divinity. Now, this wisdom that they professed was in contrast to God's truth. You see that? This wisdom that they professed was something they had imagined that was in contrast to the truth they'd already received directly from God. They professed themselves to be wise, and it said they became fools. They recorded their musings, established universities, and praised their mutual knowledge. They called it philosophy, science, comparative religion. Men called them enlightened. God called them fools. Verse 23, and change the glory of the uncorruptible God. An uncorruptible God is a God that cannot deteriorate rot like a piece of wood would. They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image that is a statue, an idol. They created an idol. The world's religions can be traced by the idols found in the garbage and the ruins of different cities. The world's religions can be traced from one image to another and from the alcoves where those images stand, where the candles are burnt and the weathered stones where people kneel in front of the images. There are places you can go where you find the images literally have toes kissed away from the mouths of dirty sinners. Can you imagine that? They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. Imagine making an image and calling it God. And the birds, they made an image of a bird and called it God. Four-footed beast, they made an image of a cow, an ox, and called it God. And creeping things, they made images of beetles and bugs and grasshoppers and worms and snakes and creepy things and said, this is my God. My, how foolish. So these people were not unenlightened, misguided victims of their time. They were fools remaking God into an image more compatible with their lust. Men will willfully turn away from glorifying the eternal God of righteousness to foolishly serve an image of a false God that permits them to selfishly indulge their lust without fear of judgment to come. Then he says, verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up. God gave them up. That means God released them, turned them loose, gave them up to uncleanness. You see, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They turned to creeping things. When they turned their back on God to creeping things, God turned loose of them and let them worship the creeping things. Wherefore, God gave them up to uncleanness through the, what is this, lust of their own hearts. So the underlying motive... For rejecting the revealed God was lust. Through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor, dishonor their own bodies. What they did with their bodies was a dishonor to the creator as well as to the body. You know, we're living in a day when people are going back to dishonoring their bodies. We're living in a day when people do things to their bodies to distort it and make it look different from how God created it to look. They poke holes in it and hang rings all over it in odd and weird places. They dye their hair different colors and make it go in angles that looks more like a wet chicken than a human being's hair. And they wear 
uh, clothes and garments that are, are designed not to accentuate the human body, but to make it look ridiculous, to mock it, to ridicule it. And even the way people laugh today, the expressions they take on and the way they, the way they gawk, and, I mean, it's all a mockery and a disgrace and, to the human body. They're, they're, they've departed from the concept of the human body as being a thing of beauty. From the human body as being a thing of grace and maturity. Being a thing of poetry and art. And they made the body into some kind of cheap Bartoville joke. They dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And he says, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. So they changed the truth they knew into a lie and they worshipped and served the creature, that's themselves and animals, more than the creator who's blessed forever. Tell me, do we live in a time when people are worshipping and serving a creature more than they are God? When people are worshipping and serving creatures, each other and animals more than they are God? Do you know, it doesn't upset people in America that a doctor will reach down to a woman's womb and grab a little infant by the head that's just coming out and twist that neck around 360 degrees until bones all pop and kill that infant and then drag it out and toss it aside. That doesn't bother them. doesn't bother them that a baby will be born that was intended to be aborted alive and the doctor will stick that baby face down in a bowl of fluid until it drowns. That doesn't bother them. But you go out and starve a cat and they'll put you in jail. You abuse, you abuse a crocodile or mess with somebody's little fishies in some stream somewhere and they'll charge you several million dollars. They worship and serve the creature more than the creator who's blessed forever. Who changed the truth of God into a, a lie. A lie. Now Paul says who is blessed forever and then he says can somebody say amen? No one did. He said amen himself. He says amen. In other words when Paul hit on this thing who is blessed forever. I mean it's in contrast to all he said about the heathen here. He's talked about the low degree to which they've sunk. And then in the course of this, he said they won't worship the creator who's blessed forever. And it just rung his bell so much that the creator's blessed forever. Amen, amen. He just said, I got amen that. That's good. He wanted to stop there and preach. I'm sure he didn't want to go on with this. I'm sure he wanted to go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and begin to extol the Savior as he so well does. But instead, he's got to go on with two more chapters of this. Why? To prove all or under sin. And no fun. Uh, this is not even a fun message to preach. Why? Because it's just it's stirring up the, the, um, the garbage from which we all come. And uh, is nothing pleasant about it. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. And then he says, for this cause God gave them up. Again he gives them up. That means God stopped fighting their wills. He gave them up. He stopped fighting their will to resist. It's like holding on to someone's hand and saying, don't go there, you'll be hurt. And they pull. Don't go there, you'll be hurt. And they pull away. Don't go there and they fight you. And finally, you turn loose of their hand. You give them up. And you let them go to their own peril and their own ruin. Why? Because that's where they wanted to go. God gave them up 
unto vile affections. You know, today, people are having sex with computers. Today, over half of the men in America are having sex with their computer. They're looking at women on the computer and lusting. Folks, it can't get too much sicker than that. It can, but not much. I mean, that is, that is so absolutely filthy, degrading. God gave them up under vile affections. Listen, if that's what you're doing, if you're looking at dirty pictures and having sex with your computer or with magazines or going to some sin hole where that stuff is hanging all over the walls and where they're showing that stuff, if you go there, you're getting very close to the bottom. You have departed and departed and departed, and God says, I'm going to turn them loose to their vile affections. There's all kinds of sins before you get that low. When you get that low, you're shutting your back on truth and righteousness. On vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. He said, even their women, that means... You might expect some degrading things out of men, but you don't expect it out of your mothers and your daughters and your wives. Even their women did change the natural use. Talking about lesbians here. Into that which is against nature. Listen to me now. He's talking about eight-year-old girls taking their clothes off and messing with each other. Hear me? He's talking about ten-year-old boys going out to the barn and pulling their pants down and playing with each other. He's talking about the sin of sodomy, queers, and lesbians. He says, this is getting as dirty as it gets. Do you talk to your children plainly? Do you let them know what sin is? Even when they're four and five, they need to know. Because that's where it starts. Are you watching whom your children play with? There are kids that come and have come to this church that will damn your children's soul with garbage like that. I don't care what church you go to. There's going to be kids there. They may be the preacher's kids. They may be the Sunday school teacher's kids. They may be the Sunday school teacher. But they'll damn your children's soul. He says, for the women did change the natural use. Notice the natural use. See, God created a woman's body. To naturally fit a man's body. That is, a woman and a man go together. That's natural. I mean, you can see that just from the way the anatomy is made. It's a positive and a negative. That's why when you go to the store doing plumbing, you ask for a male coupling and a female coupling. They're made, they're threaded, so they fit together, right? That's the reason you have a positive and a negative charge. And it takes the both of them, positive and a neutral, to create electrical flow, electrical current. The current flows from one to the other. Now, that's natural use. God made that. That's good. That's holy. They changed the natural use into that which is against nature. Their sin was contrary to nature. Two females together, that's against nature. You hear me? Two males, two boys together with sexual experiences, that's against nature. That's contrary to what God created and God intended. Now don't turn this tape off. You need to let your little kids listen to it. Some of you be sorry if you don't let your little kids listen to this tape. Into that which is against nature. See, sodomy 
is contrary to the way you were created and the way you were born. It's against nature. It's something you have to come to, you have to arrive at. He says, and likewise also the men, verse 27, likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. You see, thrills can be created where none actually and naturally exist by daring to throw off the natural in exchange for the perverted. All human appetites can be cultured and conditioned to enjoy a diet that is otherwise naturally repugnant. One can create lust that are not natural. The men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Now, people say, but I can't help it. That's just the way I'm made. Well, there's one way you can help it. The Bible says if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's more profitable to enter into life with one hand than having two to be cast into hellfire. See, I don't have a bit of sympathy for people like some of the guys at the prison that tell me that they're just bent that way and can't stop it. Oh, yes, you can. God's made a very simple solution. The Bible said there's some eunuchs made that way of man, and some eunuchs have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake. That's what the Bible says. Now, I preached this one time, and my college professor ran up to me after and said, you better not say something like that. He said, there'll be somebody go out and do that. I said, there's some people I know ought to. I'm serious. Listen, if you're heaven and hell... Depends on you getting right with God, and that's the only thing standing your way. God's got a solution. It's a real simple one. Now, you know what's going to happen when you get that desperate. When you get desperate enough to do the right thing, to be righteous, to take a knife to yourself, you just liable to start repenting. You just liable to say, God help me, save me, and you just might get born again. And if you get born again, you won't need that knife then. You'll be able to exercise self-control. You'll become natural again instead of a pervert. I've seen it. They burned their lusts one toward another, men working with men, that which is unseemly. He said it's not fit to be seen. Ephesians 5.12 says it's a shame even to speak of those things which are done to them in secret. He says, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. In other words, something happened inside of them. Something happened to them as a result of their sin. Having scratched a spot that didn't itch until it did itch, one can then offer what seems an acceptable excuse for further scratching. An alcoholic can plead inability to quit his drinking, but all of us know that there was a point at which he could have stopped drinking. And we also know there are alcoholics who do stop drinking. And we know that quite often when people are told they've only got six months to live, if they don't quit drinking, in most cases they do quit. Just like a cigarette smoker who can't quit, has tried for years, when he finds out that if he keeps smoking in a matter of months, he'd be carrying an oxygen bottle around. It's amazing how many of them can quit then. It just takes a want to, doesn't it? The heroin addict should break his addiction. He says he can't. He goes through these withdrawals. The sexual pervert says he should break his addiction. The pornographer says he should break his addiction, but he can't. He can't help himself. 
Listen, when you say, I can't help myself, you're not excusing your sin, you're compounding your guilt. Because you're stating that not only is your body addicted, but you've now surrendered your mind to it. God has given you up, and it has become the only life you know. It's a statement, not of your inability, but a statement of your confirmed unwillingness. And it is a more damnable state than your previous condition. So to cry, I can't, is to say, I am so guilty, I don't want to be any different. Now I know there are moments when sinners cry out to be different, but that's because what they're doing is hurting them and causing pain. If it were only pure pleasure, they would not want to give it up. He says, even as they did not like, verse 28, even as they did not like to retain, retain, that word retain means they once had it. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. That means they came to a point to where they did not like, that is, it was a choice. They did not like, that is, it was a preference. They did not like, that is, that's where their heart was. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It was a choice. God gave them over. Here's the third time he's given them up. Gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, you know, a reprobate mind. Earlier, they had problems in the flesh. God gave them up to their lust. God gave them up to their uncleanness. But now, God's given them up to a reprobate mind. In other words, now their mind has been tampered with. Now their mind has been warped and twisted. Now God has stopped speaking because they can no longer hear. Their mind is glazed over. Their mind is reprobate. Man, that's a sad, scary place to get to. To come to the place to where you just no longer hear and you just no longer care. Your mind has become reprobate. Some people call them atheists. Again, God just calls them fools. It was a choice they made. He says, listen to this interesting verse. As they did not like to retain God in the knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now he's talking about this sexual immorality, that to do those things which are not convenient. That sounds like a strange word to use there. Why use that word? Why do those things which are not convenient? We talk about a supermarket being convenient. It's close by our in my uh, shop there, I have a whole lot of plumbing hanging up. And when I need a piece of plumbing, I just run down there and grab it. And it's very convenient. It keeps me having to go to town for it. He said their sin is not convenient. Now, think about if you had a whole world full of sodomites. How long would that world go on? Just one generation. They'd all die. There wouldn't be any children born, right? They have to recruit. They can't birth them. Now... If I were going to do some plumbing and I had all male couplings, male fittings, would that be very convenient to plumb that way? That'd be extremely inconvenient, wouldn't it? Or if you had all female couplings, could you plumb with that? It'd be very inconvenient too, wouldn't it? What you need is an equal number of male and female couplings and you can get your plumbing job done. Or if you were trying to wire a house and all you had was the positive, no neutrals. You couldn't wire the house. You couldn't make it work. Now, it's a beautiful word the King James Bible has chosen to describe this sin. Their sin is not very convenient. It just doesn't fit. You know, that's something that is like that would be very queer, wouldn't it? 
I mean, wouldn't that be queer just to have all male fittings or all female? It's a very, very queer thing, wouldn't it? You see, that is the queerest plumber I ever saw. Do you realize that all he's got is male couplings? That is a queer thing, isn't it? A very good word. So, sodomites are inconvenient, and they're queer, and they're strange, they're perverted, they're without God, and they're without hope. And some of them reach a place of a reprobate mind where God's given them up. They've rejected God in their knowledge. Down in Memphis, when we were down there speaking one time, there's a group of them standing there holding hands, singing Amazing Grace. Now, folks, <laughs> that was... That was so repugnant to have our song sung. How could they do that? They're gone. Their mind's gone. No mind left. No understanding. No truth. To do those things which are not convenient. Now, verse 29, 30, and 31. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, Haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Now that's a terrible list of sins. Fornication, that's sexual impurity. Wickedness, that's evil in principle and practice. Covetousness, that's breaking your tenth commandment. That's desiring something belongs to someone else. Maliciousness, that's a disposition to cause or see another person injured or hurt in some way. Envy. That's a feeling of rivalry or competition towards others. It's a desire to have their gifts, their abilities, their station in life. Murder, that's an act or a desire to end the life of another person. Debate is that state of verbal contention that leads to quarrelsome argument. Deceit is an act of intentionally for purposes of selfish gain or malicious intent, misleading or causing another person to believe that which is not true. Malignity is virulent, dangerous to life. Morally, it is to have evil intent toward our maliciousness. And then he says, whisperers, that's those who slander secretly. Backbiters, that's those who speak evil of others in their absence. Haters of God, that's most of the world who's angry with God for not running the universe the way they think he should. Who refuse to worship God because they have negative feelings about the way he's managed their affairs. They're haters of God. You know, I've talked to atheists. I've said, uh, what makes you think there's no God or I've said, I can prove to you the existence of God. And I've had atheists say to me, if there's a God, why would he let my mother suffer for two years when she was only 52 years old? Why would he let her lay there in that bed and suffer? Or he'd say, if there was a God, why would he let mongoloid children be born? I had a little child and he started telling me about a child born to him. Most every atheist I've ever talked to was just mad at God. He really, it really wasn't that he didn't believe there was a God. It's kind of like the kid when you say, where's your mama? And the mama's standing right there. And the kid looks over his shoulder and gives his mama a nasty look. And he looks back at me and says, I don't have a mama. My mama's dead. Now the kid knows his mama's standing there behind him. But he's trying to hurt her. And most of the time, atheists are nothing more than people trying to get back at God. Pitiful. Small. Despiteful. That's the state of looking down on a person with a desire to hurt them. Proud. That's the condition of having inordinate self-esteem. Possessing an unreasonable high conception of one's excellence of body or mind. That's pride. Boasters, that's those who speak of their own worth, whether person or accomplishments. Inventors of evil things. Now, I'll tell you, we're living in that day and age of inventing evil things. I just read a, a whole magazine the other day on where they expect computers to go and some of the virtual reality stuff. And, 
It's enough to make you want to just take all your computers and your cell phones and all your electronic stuff and dig a hole and bury it and get yourself a horse and just get away from it all. I mean, it's absolutely frightening what man is doing with electronics today. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to outdo them. I'm going to use it for good and for righteousness as long as I can stand it and try to get there with the first with the most, you know, of the truth. But uh, men are inventors of evil things today. The thing itself is not evil, but the way many things are used are absolutely evil. Disobedient to parents is listed along with these fornication and other things. Without understanding, the average person thinks that, that to plead lack of understanding is to exempt himself from responsibility. But to state you don't have un any understanding is to state that you've reached the end of a downward curve. Covenant breakers are those who enter into a mutual agreement with God. Say, God, if you'll save me, I won't do it again. And then they fail to obey Fail to keep their side without natural affection. That's men and women who don't commit sodomy but defend sodomy as possibly being all right if two people mutually love each other and really have a caring relationship with their significant other. That's without natural affection. Implacable is to be unappeasable, cannot be placated, nothing will satisfy, irreconcilable, and then finally unmerciful. That's a condition of being without mercy. It's common to man to err. And if we don't show mercy, then we're walking on those who need it most. We have a natural innate desire to show mercy and to have mercy shown upon us. And a man who doesn't show mercy is a man who's full of pride and selfishness and, and hurt and harm and bitterness. And finally says verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, notice where this chapter ends, who knowing the judgment of God, these people, that he's described here, know something. They knew God, and now, what is it they know? They know the judgment of God. These people know that God judges sin. These people know that sin ends in death. They know the judgment of God. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. God says... That people who commit these things are worthy of death. If they're going to be put to death, God will have to do it. I'm not going to. Now, he also tells us that the people who commit fornication are worthy of death. The people who are disobedient to the parents are worthy of death. The people who are liars and covenant breakers, they're worthy of death. That includes all of us. But these people are worthy of death. He says, notice the rest of the verse. Who commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That is, the person is worthy of death. Not only the one who commits these sins is worthy of death, but the one who has pleasure in other people committing these sins is worthy of death. What does that mean? That means if you look upon sodomites and you think about the pleasure they must have and you approve of that in that you find pleasure in thinking on it, then you deserve the same death they'll get. That means if you think about adulterers and you don't commit adultery, but you think about the pleasure, are you justified? For instance, you say, well, she was such a mean old woman. I can understand why he went out on her. And they've got such a nice, sweet relationship now. They're going to be married after all, after the divorce goes through. And you approve of that sinfulness, then you deserve the same death sentence that those adulterers deserve. If you have pleasure, if you sit and watch a TV program... Where a sinner indulges in sin, breaks the commandments of God. Where he is unwholesome and unworthy in the things he does. 
where what he does would not be approved of by God. If you sit and watch that and you find satisfaction in his lifestyle, you find pleasure in what he's doing, then you're worthy of the same death he's worthy of. I want to tell you, Hollywood is geared today, if nothing else, it's geared to cause you to take pleasure in sin. Hollywood's program and agenda is to break down your resistance to sin and to cultivate in you an indifference to values. To cultivate in you a passiveness, to, to take away from you any sense of judgment and to leave you with an attitude of live and let live. That's what Hollywood's trying to do. And if you take pleasure in what Hollywood offers you in the sinful acts of some individual, you are descending down the ladder step by step with a sodomite in front and a sodomite behind. So I don't do it. No, but you're taking pleasure. And you deserve the same death that they do. Adulterer in the front, adulterer behind. A murder in the front, a murder behind. And there you go. Say, I don't do those things, but you're taking pleasure in them. You deserve the same death as they do. So Paul is proving that all are under sin. He's gotten off to a good start, I'd say. I'd say he's doing a pretty good job of it. I'd say that by the time he gets through and presents Christ, we'll be ready for him. We'll be ready. All right, we'll stop there.